Hey guys, we're looking at chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. We're continuing on. Now, I guess it's good to mention the title from the last time we talked, because in the preceding verses, uh, verses 1 through 8, you know, he was kind of talking about the danger of turning away from faith. And, you know, that if you give up on Christ, if you give up on faith, the consequences of that. So, he's, so as is, we've already seen with our writer, when he comes down heavy, like when he takes us to the woodshed and really whoops us and beats us up, he follows it with an encouragement. Okay, He usually follows a time of tough teaching with a time of encouragement, where he's going to encourage us then to continue on, to continue plugging on. And so that's what we're going to see here. We're going to see an encouragement in verses uh, 9 through 20. So let's look, first of all, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12 and see that there's an affirmation here. So notice with me what he writes. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, and that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit promises. Okay, so let's talk a couple things here. First of all, the writer's perspective. The writer refers to his readers with an affectionate term, beloved. So, okay, he's going to start out with an encouraging time, but he's going to refer to them as beloved. So that's, that's an affectionate, endearing term. All right, so he's concerned for them. So that's how he's starting out. And he's going to state that he has a confidence. He states that he's confident that they are meant for better things. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've committed your life to follow him, to walk in his ways, if you're trusting in him for your salvation, the, the impact of this verse is, is that there's a trust that you're going to do better. Do you know what I'm saying? He's trusting you for better things to happen in your life. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Because we can get easily discouraged by looking at how we live our lives, right? So, like, for instance, if you've got a besetting problem, some kind of habit or issue that is constantly bringing you down, that you're constantly giving into, it's, it would be real hard for you to think, well, man, how am I ever going to overcome this? Because I keep doing the same thing, same wrong stuff over and over again. And the reality is, is that you need to be encouraged that the Scripture is saying we need to trust each other for what? Better things in our lives. In fact, isn't that what Paul tells us? Paul tells us in Philippians that we can be confident of this, that what he who's begun a good work in you will complete it. God is the one who begins a work in your life. God is the one who changes you. Do you understand? And he'll complete the work that he wants to do in your life. So it's, it's with that kind of confidence that he's saying, hey, you were meant for better things. 
You were meant for better things in your life. Now, I think that's especially important because remember, he's talking about people who were wanting to give up on their faith, who gave up on their faith and said there's no hope for them anymore. But he's trying to encourage us to continue on trusting in spite of what all that happens around us. Continue trusting because you were meant for better things. Okay? You were meant for better things. Now, here's what he's saying. He refers to the better things as that which accompanies salvation. Here's the problem with most of us today in our churches. We usually think in terms of salvation as the ticket to heaven. Okay? We think of it in terms of what's going to happen to me later when I die. Well, I'll be honest with you, most people, unless you're pretty morbid or sick and a doctor told you something this week, most of you are not thinking about dying. Am I correct in saying that? Okay? Most of the people that you work with are not thinking about dying. They're thinking about later on or what they want to do. But for some reason, we communicate the whole issue of salvation as your ticket later when you go to be with Jesus. But that's, not, that's only one small component of salvation. Salvation is now what he does for your life now. The forgiveness now, the removal of shame now, the newness of life, the ability to say no to things. The relationship with God, there's so much more now. But we don't talk about that. We talk about streets of gold. Okay? And so when he refers to better things, you were meant for better things, he's not talking about later on. He's talking about the reality of your salvation right now. Okay? Right now. You were meant for better things. Now, this is in spite of the fact that he had spoken harshly in verses 1 through 8. Notice what he says there, verse 9. Though we spoke in this manner, that refers back to what he was saying in verses 1 to 8. So, even in spite of the fact that he's been warning them and he kind of took them to the woodshed, he's saying he has a confidence of better things in their life concerning what salvation is going to do in their life. You know what I mean? Concerning what salvation is going to do in their life. So let's go on. That was verse 9. Look at verse 10 now. He's going to talk about God. And here's something that you and I need to, I guess, realize. He stresses that God is not unjust in his dealings with his people. God is not unjust in his dealings with his people. You may want to put a star by that one, because sometimes we think he is unjust, because maybe something we asked for didn't happen, or uh, maybe we're going through a crisis and we're like, well, why is this happening to me? Why'd you let this happen to me, God? Okay? God's not unjust. God does not do evil. There is no sin in God. God cannot sin. God is love, so he always responds to you in perfect love. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Perfect love, as he defines it, not as you define it. Because sometimes what you define as love is not necessarily right either. Okay? He doesn't turn a blind eye to things. So he stresses that God is not unjust in dealing with his people. 
God will not forget their efforts for him or their ministry for other believers. So God's not going to forget what you've been doing for him and especially what you've been doing for other people. Do you understand? Remember now, the key to spiritual life is not just that you focus on yourself, but that you what? That you are there for other people, that you help other people, that you minister to them. And God's not going to forget that. Okay? In fact, isn't that, I think it's interesting that he follows up this discussion of that God's not unjust with an affirmation that God's not going to forget. Why would he say that? Probably because they're, they're saying that kind of thing. Because we say it. How many of you, don't raise your hand. How many of you said stuff like this? God, why am I going through this? I, I help. Lord, I, I, I helped that person the other day, and I don't even like them. Why are you letting me? I, you know, I sacrifice. I put up. I, I help with the kids. I don't like kids, Lord. Do you see what I'm doing? I mean, those are common things that we say, right? You probably have your own list of things that you say. And it seems very interesting that he would say, look, God's not unjust. All right? And he hasn't forgotten what you've been doing for him and other people. Okay? So, here's what he says. The writer expresses that each of them will, will be diligent in their work until the end. He has a confidence that each of them expresses that each of them, he's hoping that they'll continue to be diligent to the end. That you're going to continue to hang on in spite of anything that goes wrong. All right, let's stop for a moment. All right, does everybody here understand you need to develop a theology of suffering? Do you need to under, do you understand that? What's a theology of suffering, George? A theology of suffering is having a understanding that the world you live in isn't rosy. That bad things happen. Because that's the world we live in. And the chances are, more than likely, something wrong is going to happen with you. It could be a pink slip. It could be a doctor telling you you got something that's terminal. It could be an accident. It could be, on a grander scale, an economy collapsing. I mean, we live in a bad world. And you need to see what's happened for years is, is we've told everybody, everything's going to be wonderful, everything's going to be sweet, everything's going to be fine. And then when bad stuff happens, we're like, wow, man, this is not what I was told. You were told wrong. The Bible, here's the thing, the Bible assumes that you're going to suffer. So what it tells you to do is hang on. Hang tough. Hold on to your faith. Endure to the end. Because life's going to throw the kitchen sink at you. And the dishwasher and the stove. Do you know what I'm saying? Hold on. Because you'll be shocked. You know, I, 
I would think that I don't get shocked anymore by stuff in life anymore, but I still get shocked when, when stuff happens. It's like, wow, didn't expect that. Didn't expect that to happen. Where did that come from? And it happens to all of us. Service is rendered because assurance of hope. Service is rendered because of the assurance of hope that all believers have. You and I, he's telling us, need to continue to serve others, continue to be there for others, because of the assurance of hope that we have. Because the assurance of salvation, the assurance that one day we're going to stand before God. And he's going to reward us. That should encourage you to continue on and help others. Okay? Continue on. So rather, here's what he's saying. He's expressing here, the writer expresses that they do not become lazy in their efforts. You ever go through a lazy spell? You know what I mean? You ever have a lazy spell? Where you just don't feel like doing nothing? Do you know what I'm saying? You just feel worthless and you just feel like, I'm just going to take care of myself. And I'm just going to veg, you know, or in front of the TV or in front of a device. And you just feel lazy. Well, he's saying here, he's expressing that they don't become lazy in their efforts. That you hang in there. Okay? Now, laziness happens because we focus on who? On ourselves. Okay, let's look. Verses 12. But imitate those whose faith and patience inherit the promise. You and I are to imitate those who endure until they inherited the promises. Okay, so in your mind, if you've been a believer a while, if you've been a believer for a while, you've met people that you knew were truly spiritual people. They were there for other people. And no matter what the junk was that happened in their life, they held on to their faith and they endured. You know what you know what I'm saying? You don't need to say who it is. You know what I'm talking about, right? Here's what the writer is encouraging us. Instead of us becoming lazy, we need to follow their example. We need to continue on. Because those people, in your mind, you're thinking, they were great people. They loved God, they loved me, they loved other people. They had a great testimony. And that's that's what he's encouraging us to be like here, okay? He's encouraging us to be like that. So then what he does now in the rest of this section, verses 13 through 20, is, is he gives us the example of Abraham, okay? Remember Abraham from Genesis? Look at what he writes here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so that after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. By two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation that we have fled for refuge to lay hold of hope that is set before us. 
This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, what's he saying here? First of all, the promise of Abraham. The writer provides an illustration of his point through the example of Abraham. So the writer provides an illustration of the point through the example of Abraham. So here he is. He's telling us, hang on. Don't get lazy. Hold on to your trust in spite of all the difficulties and circumstances. Hang on there. Set before yourself an example to plug on. And so here he gives us an example. Abraham himself. When God made a promise to Abraham, he swore it by the highest authority himself. Isn't that interesting? When God makes a promise, he, he, you don't have to wonder about who's promising. And do, do you know what I'm saying? He swore it by his what? Highest authority. Now, do, do we make promises? Do we make promises? Yep. Okay. How are we good at keeping them? Are we 100% on them? No, because even though we may intend to keep our promises, other things happen that may cause us to what? Not keep them. Or we don't have the, have the ability to keep it. Or circumstances might change. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons why humans are not good at keeping promises. Well, when God makes a promise, he swears it by him what? By himself. He's the highest authority. So he promised Abraham that he would bless him and multiply his heirs. <clears throat> he promised Abraham that he would bless him and multiply his heirs. Let me just stop for a moment. As we think about Abraham's promise, have you thought about the promise he gave you guys? Remember I told you we get defeated sometimes. We wonder how we're going to ever overcome it. Have you thought about the promise he gave you? It's right there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, will what? Complete it until the day of Christ. God's got a work that he's going to do in your life, and he's going to complete it. That's a promise. And you notice something. When you look at that verse, who's it based on? Is it based on you? Aren't you glad for that? He's the one who's going to continue the work in your life, okay? So here with Abraham, he tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply your heirs. Now notice, after Abraham patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Anybody know how long Abraham waited? I think he waited 25 years. 25 years for the promise to be fulfilled, and that was in just Isaac. 25 years. 25 years. Would you wait 25 years? We're the microwave generation. I mean, we get mad at the microwave if it doesn't end on time. Do you know what I'm saying? We go through the drive-thru, and they say, pull over here, and we're like, oh, I can't believe you don't have my order ready. Do you know what I mean? 
What's what's that? It ain't fast. <laughs> okay. Yes. You know. I mean, th that's the reality. But he waited patiently. Are you waiting patiently? We want it now, don't we? We want God to do his work now. We want God to change us now. We want God to change other people now. After Abram pa patiently waited, he obtained his promise. Here's the thing. Men swear oaths by a higher authority, which makes the oath binding. Okay? We do that, don't we? You go to the courthouse. You sign a document. You have to swear or you sign an oath that everything you wrote is correct. The noter puts their stamp on it, and that document becomes what? Quote, legally binding until they take it to court and tear it apart or something. But normally an oath is cons considered to be binding. It was in their culture. So God made the oath in order to show the heirs of the promise that it was unchanging. So here's the thing about God's promises. It's unchanging. It's unchanging. So here's what I want you to see about God's oath. God gave an oath and a promise. He gave us an oath and a promise. What is the promise to you and I? The promise of salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Newness of life now. That's the promise we have. Who's it based on? It's not based on you. You couldn't do anything for it. You can't mess it up. Did you understand what I'm saying? It's all based on Jesus alone. Okay? Here's the other thing I want you to see. They are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. You don't have to wonder if what he promised you is true. God doesn't lie. It's not going to change. He's not going to, you don't have to wonder if, if some, like after a few years he looks at you and says, you know what, I need to change the terms of our contract here. You're, you're a bigger mess than I thought you would be. God doesn't act that way. Okay? God does not act that way. Alright? By the way, we're all bigger messes than we think we are. Okay? Here's what we're to do. We, can be courageous cur courageous because we hold on to the hope before us with confidence. So you just keep going on. Okay, so what does that mean? Let me help you. Okay, so we talked about the things that so easily beset us, the things that we struggle with, the things that cause us to stumble, the things that we give into that we know we don't want to do. And, and so you get up in the morning and you say, I'm not going to do it today. I'm not going to do it today. And before lunchtime, you've what? You've done it. What the implication is of the text here is, is that you be courage, courageous here. You be courageous and what? You pick yourself up. And you say it again, I'm not going to what? Do it again. It was a few years ago, a lady wrote a simple book, and it was about, I think, chapter one. I walked down the street. I fell into a pit. 
couldn't find my way out. I struggled for the longest time. Finally found myself out of the pit. Chapter 2. I'm walking down the same pit. Excuse me, the same road. I fall into the same pit. I'm asking myself, why am I in here again? And I struggle, and, and, and if after a long time, I get myself out of the pit. Chapter 3. I'm walking down the same road. I fall into the same pit again. You get the picture, right? Chapter 26. I took a different road. Do you understand what I'm saying? So this is, you and I, we can be courageous because we hold on to the hope that's before us. What's the hope before us? One day the battle's going to be over. One day I don't have to give in anymore. One day the attitudes will be gone. The sin issues will be gone. I can hold on. I can hold on. So here's our hope. Here's how he describes our hope. We have a hope as an anchor of the soul, which is sure and steadfast. So we have a hope that is the anchor of our soul, that's sure and steadfast. So that's our hope. Your hope is what gives you strength to get up in the morning. Do you understand? Because some mornings you don't want to get up, right? Especially if your world's falling apart. You know what I mean? Hopefully everybody knows what I mean because every one of us has a moment where it seems like our world is falling apart, right? Something you maybe have done or sometimes it's stuff that you didn't even create and it happened to you. Right? Remember I told you we've got to develop that theology of suffering. Junk happens. Junk happens. We create it sometimes for ourselves. Sometimes it's created for us by other by other things that we didn't totally expect, and we're we're blindsided by it. But hope gives us strength to get up in the morning and say, "What? I'm plugging on. In spite of this, I'm going to get through this." In fact, let's stop for a moment. Everybody, think about the last piece of junk that you went through in your life. It may have been last week. The last crisis, the last difficulty, you thought when you were going through it, how am I going to get through this, right? I'm, I can't believe that this is happening to you. Remember how the emotions that were going on in your life? I mean, you took it home. It ate your lunch. You were up at night thinking about it. You say, I don't want to think about that. I'm not asking you to think about that. I'm asking you to think about it. Didn't you make it through it? You say, I'm going, still going through it. Okay, well, think about the one before that. Did you make it through it? You made it through it. In fact, isn't that our life? It's one crisis after another. And we make it through them, don't we? Don't we? Do you understand what I'm saying? You've got a hope to hold on to. The God who brought you through those other things will bring you through the thing you're going through right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? The God who brought you through this will bring you through that. Now, this hope enters the presence of God behind the veil. This is the hope that takes me to God. This is the hope that allows me to go to him and say to him, God, you know what's going on? God, you know the difficulty that I'm facing? God, you know how I'm feeling? God, you know my emotions? You know I'm done. I'm spent. I don't have any energy anymore. 
God, I don't even know if I have any hope anymore. That's the hope that takes you. It takes you behind the veil into the presence of God. That's the point he's telling you here. Folks, I've said this to you. If you want to write this down, write this down. The crisis will do one of two things with you and God. A crisis will do one of two things. It will either draw you closer to God or it will drive you away from God. Do you hear what I said? A crisis will either draw you closer to God or drive you away from God. The key between the two of those is the issue of hope. If your hope is in Christ and the fact that he's given you a promise and that he's not lying to you and that he wants what's best for you, the crisis will draw you to him to help you to get you through it. Now, he doesn't promise to take away the problem, does he? He gives you grace to see you through it. But if you don't have any hope, your expression is going to be one of anger. Why are you letting this happen to me? And we see that all the time, don't we? We see that all the time. Now, It is here that Jesus entered before us on our behalf. That's the other thing you can take courage of. The writer makes the point that, you know, it's our hope that brings us behind the veil, but it's our hope that recognizes that somebody went before us already, and that's who? Jesus. That's the one we have our hope in, isn't it? Jesus was already there. In fact, Jesus is already there, isn't he? He's the one sitting on the right hand of the Father, now interceding for who? Hey, isn't it wonderful to think that God right now, Jesus right now, is sitting on the right hand of the Father, and he's talking about you? And it ain't this, this isn't the conversation. Forget what they're doing, Lord. I, I know they've, they've got a problem. No, no, it's not that. You want to know what it is? You want to know what the conversation is? Zechariah. Zechariah gives us a picture. Zechariah sees the vision of Joshua, the high priest. He's clothed in dirty garments. And Satan is there accusing him because of the stuff he's done wrong. And the angel of the Lord speaks up and rebukes Satan, tells him to basically shut up. And this is what he says. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Are, are you and I not brands plucked from the fire? And then he says, put a new, new clothes on him. White clothes. Put a new clean turban on his head. It means he clothes us in his righteousness. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? That's the conversation that's going on. God, this is the one I died for. Yeah, they're struggling. But we're the ones who are going to do the work in their life. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're the ones who are going to do the work in their life. See, the hope that we have to go behind the veil is that there's already one there already. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you don't need to show up and say, Hey, by the way, God, do you know what's happening in my life? He knows. He's already been talking about it. He's already aware of it. 
And then he tells us about Jesus. Jesus has become high priest forever. What's that? That mediator with God according to the order of Melchizedek. According to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, next week, we're going to talk about the significance of that order of Melchizedek. 